Welcome to Red State of the Union Q&As. I'm Kevin Smith. Uh, so this week in Los Angeles, we had uh, almost biblical rain, one could say. Um, and uh, when, when it rains in L.A., particularly as much as it rained this week, you don't want to make people go out. I had to go out, do some Christmas shopping, and it was nasty. So, you know, we normally have our Red State of the Union class at the Smod Castle on Monday nights. Then it airs on Smodcast.com on Tuesday nights. But uh, Monday, it was just too, uh, the, the downpour is too torrential to ask anybody to come out. And so we called the class off for the week, reconvening next week. But I didn't want to let a week go by without a podcast going up. So what I did was recruit folks on Twitter to throw out some questions. They can audit Red State of the Union Q&As for the day by, you know, being part of the class, by asking questions. So to stand in for all the question askers I've pulled, um, I, uh, I, I brought in Mr. Malcolm Ingram. Say hello, Malcolm. Hello. Malcolm is going to be the proxy, uh, for the audience. So essentially, rather than me just asking myself a question and then answering the question or just doing this podcast alone, Malcolm's going to be there to, to lean on and whatnot. And it's fitting because without Malcolm, Red State probably wouldn't exist. It was seeing Malcolm's interview footage with, uh, Fred Phelps. Um, on his documentary, small town gay bar that made me go, Oh my God, this, this, this guy could be like an awesome movie villain, like a, just a over the top fundamentalist preacher. So, um, it's fitting, sir, that you're, that you're here and, and, and being the stand in guy. And it's also kind of like, you need to be like the little Jewish boy at Passover where you're like, why is this night different from all other nights? Like you have to, there, you have a role to play tonight. So. You get to ask about Elijah. Why is this chair empty? You know, it's for the prophet Elijah, who may join us at some point. Um, so in any event, uh, let's get going. What I did was pull a bunch of questions off Twitter, opened up a question asking for a few minutes, and uh, we got inundated. So I pulled um, the ones that were uh, probably most germane to the discussion. A lot of them were like, hey, man, you gonna now that you've done Red State, hit somebody. They were all into hit somebody and whatnot, but I want to keep this about Red State. So we pulled a bunch. We'll see how many we can get through. Uh, it's, but for now, Malcolm, you stand in for all of Twitter. Uh, yeah, they're all different people, so you gotta do a different voice for each one. Oh my god. No, you don't have to do a different voice. No, I mean, that's, I'm no Mosier, unfortunately. Alright, um, hit me, but I hope I'm up for the task. But, mm-hmm. uh, Kevin, mm-hmm. our opening question comes from one Strabo. S-T-R-A-B-B-O Strabo. Okay. Um, he asks, will listening to the Red State of the Union podcast spoil the surprise of the movie itself? That's a good question. It will not. Um, if you've been listening to Red State since the, uh, uh since we started, uh, this podcast, everything we've talked about or heard or gotten into takes place in the first 18 minutes of the film. Uh, the course was designed very specifically to not be uh spoiler oriented. You can go into Red State pretty clean. Now, you're going to know the basic premise, but you were always going to know that before you saw it anyway. Three high school boys go in the woods to find sex and instead find God. And that's kind of what the movie's about. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty clever. Thank you. Um now that also doesn't give away you've seen the movie, so yes. you know what I'm talking about. While we sit there and for all these uh pods we've done so far in Red State, nothing has scratched the surface we we are safely contained within the first 17 minutes of the movie uh on red state q and uh, q and a's red state of the union q and a's now after sundance cats out of the bag once we screen at the Eccles on january 23rd at 6 15 
you know, by the time the movie's over at eight, whatever, close to eight, that's it. Everyone's going to know the surprises. Everyone's going to know, you know, the fucking, all the shit that we've kept very, very quiet up until now. I mean, every, you know, people, when they review the movies with uh, the movie is uh, they're going to spoil a bunch of fucking shit. So from Sundance after the Sundance screening forward, we're going to do another round of red state Q in the a second semester. Uh, at that point, you'll be hearing a lot more about what the plot is. But my f- feeling is at that point, everyone will know a lot more about anyone who's interested will know a lot more about the movie because it will have screened and stuff like that. So for now, for the first uh, beginning of this podcast up until I would say the Sundance episode or any episode after Sundance that we do, they're pretty safe to listen to. They've been designed to be spoiler free. James underscore LRR. Uh, he asks, was it a difficult adjustment to go back to such a small budget? Oh, James, not at all. I've long maintained, uh, even when I wasn't making Red State for years, I've said my job on a movie doesn't change from flick to flick. I write the script, rehearse the actors, make sure the actors give an on-camera performance that's as close to the one I heard in my head when I was writing it, if not better. So it doesn't matter if you have 10 bucks or 10 million bucks. My job is pretty much the same on each movie. It becomes more difficult for whoever the producer is, the line producer, uh, the production manager, because they have to figure out how to make everything work on a low budget. But me, generally speaking, no. Every once in a while, you'll come up against a financial issue, as we did on Red State when there were moments where I think I've spoken about it previously. one point, I, I, I had written in the script, uh, Ram's Head. Um, was going to be used, uh, on somebody. And, uh, you know, the, the special effects department was like, it's going to cost five grand. I was like, Oh, okay. Well, let's do it. It's worth it. But then the guy was like, that's 5,000 is our entire budget for the entire movie, not just for the scene and not just for the fucking Rams head, but for the entire fucking movie. So I was like, Ooh, we can't have that. So it, it forced me to be more creative where I was like, okay, it ain't going to be a Rams head. We got to figure out something else that we could do inexpensively. So, uh, well, that's what we did. So. There, there were definitely moments where, you know, you had to adjust based on the budget or the, the lack of budget. We shot the movie for about four million bucks, a little less than four million. Um, but you know, you kind of make do. It is actually mother, necessity is the mother of invention. So when Rams had went out the door, something much cooler came in for it. Moving on to Owlman Hayes. Yes. Like a who, who, owl, okay. a man Hayes. Um, would you have been able to write Red State at the start of your career? Oh, no. Kevin? God, no, Malcolm. Uh, or, or, or Owlman Hayes. Um, the, no, not at all. Red State is the sum total of nearly 20 years of, of storytelling, uh, cinematic storytelling and storytelling in other mediums too. The more you do something, the more practiced you get at it, the better your instincts are when it comes to, to doing it again and again and again. So, um, this time around, I, 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 it was, for me, it was more important to write something where less was more. I wrote Red State right after finishing Zack and Mary Make a Porno. And Zack and Mary, very verbose script and whatnot. Uh, there was a, a huge talky sections. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's a shit ton of dialogue in Red State. But at the same time, the dialogue is far more naturalistic. So I didn't write, you know, the standard kind of Kevin Smith dialogue for Red State to begin with. Then, when you bring the actors in who are giving a naturalistic kind of delivery to naturalistic dialogue, it even makes it sound more realistic. Um, so it's this movie doesn't sound like Kevin Smith films generally do. Um, and that was kind of uh, intentional. And then that's not something I could have done 
in the beginning. Like I had to write the way I wrote back then, which was overwriting just tons and tons and tons of dialogue and shit. And only after 20 years of, of writing that dialogue, shooting that dialogue, hearing the actors bring the dialogue to life and then going back into an editing room and cutting that dialogue. And you start to figure out what you need, what you don't. And, and suddenly I'm like, ah, let's not overwrite. Let me scale back, scale back. Less is more. I became a far more economical filmmaker, but not economical in a bad way. Just like I knew exactly what I wanted going in and whatnot. So I could say, let me give me this, give me this, give me this. And I couldn't have even done that in the writing of a script nearly 20 years back because I was too all over. You know, there's this difference between fucking like a high school boy and fucking like a man. You know, when you're fucking like a high school boy, you're just like, I can't believe I'm coming and I'm in something warm that's breathing in a girl. So you're just very, you're not thinking about how to, you know, if nuance or anything like that. You're just, oh my God, I can't believe I get to do this here. And you put everything on the page. After years and years, you you kind of define your style. You become a bit more mature and stuff like that. And just as presumably I'm a better fucker now than when I was fucking 12 or 13, I, I, I'm a better storyteller now. So writing this story, I couldn't have done it at the beginning. I mean, case in point, Dogma is like the first script that I wrote. It's not Clerks. Um, Dogma was the one I started writing before Clerks. So, you know, you look at the first draft of Dogma, it ain't even close to the movie. It's like three times the amount of dialogue that's in the movie. So for me to have written Red State, which is also something about, it has to do with religious issues to some degree. Um, not so much a twin to dogma, but a dark cousin, if you will. Um, you would, if I had written Red State back then, I would have been as overly verbose as dogma and just sounded like, you know, just a kid who's like, look how clever I am. You know, it's, it happened. I had the dialogue equivalent of what a lot of people have as the, uh, as their visuals on the first film. A lot of first time directors are like, Oh my God. Oh, wait, I'm going to pull every trick out the bags. I don't know if I'll ever get to make another movie. So that camera's fucking spinning around 360 degrees up, down, all over the fucking joint, getting in the way of simple storytelling or end or dialogue. And I didn't do that with the camera because I wasn't visually adept at all, but I would do it with dialogue. Or, look at this. Look at that. I'm going to pull out every track. Look how clever this is. Look at it. Look what I could do here. And now I'm more mature enough to be like, no, this is enough. The Spartan is better. The less said, the more. That being said, there's an 18-minute monologue in the movie. Uh, we're going on to a pair 420. Okay. 420, dude. Um, are you going to make fun of Megan Phelps as hard as Red State as you did on Twitter? Um, no. Uh, Megan Phelps is fun to play with on Twitter because she's so earnest. and She's cute. I mean, whatever. <laughs> I, no, she's not, dude. Anybody that spouts hate speak, I don't give a fuck I'm what they look purely, like. Well, I've, I've, Even on the aesthetic, dude, is I can't I get past I met Megan and her fucking, brother, I think, and, and her brother. Well, did you, when you went to interview Phelps yes. for Small Town Gay Bar, uh-huh. was she there? Yes. Or was, was it her older sister, uh, Jay? It was the two youngest. It was It was a very young girl. She would have been like 18, 17, 18. Yeah, that would be her because she's about 20 something now. Yeah. And then her, and it was like her brother and they were fucking, it was so interesting because they're the most beautiful, like her brother or his attractive dude. That's right. You were telling me, you were like, all the time I was interviewing Phelps, man, I couldn't help but look at his boy. His boy was (laughs) a beautiful boy. (laughs) His sultry young boy. (laughs) I just wanted to take his boy. (laughs) (laughs) Why couldn't that boy be mine? What, well, uh, Fred's not going to like hearing that. <laughs> Fred ain't ever going to hear this fucking podcast. <laughs> I assure you. Um, yeah, he was, uh, you, you said that they were very sweet, nice. 
until they open their mouth. Like that was the that's the thing is well, thing. even Zach and Joey said too. Like Zach and Joey, uh, the Phelps did a protest outside of a show I did in Kansas City last year, a Q and A this year rather. And um, Zach and Joey went out there because they're like, fuck it, man. Because they announced they were like, we're going after the fag enabler, Kevin Smith. Mm-hmm. And I was like, right on. That's my nickname. Well, fag enabler. I am. I was like, what you hear about Malcolm? I've enabled his whole fucking life. <laughs> call, him a Mal- call me a Malcolm enabler. Don't <laughs> dismiss it. Don't group him in with everyone. How dare you besmirch the name of the gay community? And they immediately changed their com- campaign to God hates Malcolm. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, they were, uh, they, it, as I said earlier, is your doc, your interview with him. Like I, when I saw the, the documentary that you put together, there's a good, you know, 10 minutes of Phelps interview. And I was like, Oh my God, is there any more of that? At that point, I was like, that should be the whole fucking movie. Just make a documentary about him. And you were like, everybody talks about him. And, but you, nobody had ever gotten him to sit for as long as you had, at least not for fucking years. So you were like, I got a lot of footage. I was like, can I see it? Yeah. You sent it to me. It was like an hour sit down interview with him. And it was hopefully one day we'll put it on the red state DVD. I don't know if we can. I mean, I guess he signed off for the, yeah. I mean, interview. I own it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's frightening. It's really frightening. I sat there watching alone in a room and it was fucking scary. Try being a gay man. Yeah, but you never <laughs> like, told him, right? You never said, like, I he figured it out. Like, okay, I'm fine. He, he figured out. I, I think he kind of figured it out by my questioning and that, like, but I didn't really. Well, you don't come off even like, you be like Raskin, my agent. I forget what movie we were on, but at one point where he was sitting around, catch we were and release. Catch and release. And all of a sudden, you know, you went to the bathroom or something like that. And he was saying, like, that's a really interesting documentary, like idea for documentary. Why would he want to? He's like, why would he want to? What made him think of that? And I was like, well, fucking he's because he's gay. He's big old gay. And Raskin was like, what? And I was like, yeah, you didn't know Malcolm's gay. We talk about him eating dick all the time. He's like, I thought you guys were kidding. I was like, no, he's I mean, we're kidding, but he is gay. And he was just like, but he doesn't he doesn't seem like he's gay. So you got that. You pass all the time with like. You're pretty big dude. You come across more like a fucking football player or something. Well, that's like that. a, when I did Small Town Gay Bar. Actually, the first thing I did was I went to Walmart and I bought my uniform, which mm-hmm. was I bought a very generic football jersey and I bought Dickies. And uh, well, essentially, I bet you did. You were like, I can't believe you can buy Dickies right here at Walmart. <laughs> Give me a whole basket full. Put them on my mouth and my butt under my armpits. This is all you can eat. I can't get enough Dickies. Oh, I love Dickies. That's why I became gay. <laughs> I like to cummies out my Dickies. <laughs> and I like when the Dickies cummies on me. Like Dickies is a shirt. What now? <laughs> I don't want any of that. Shirts. Take their shirts off. I like when the Dickies have no shirts on. <laughs> you went and got a uniform yeah like I, i'm a walmart i'm an average guy yeah well it was a shirt it, it was get a, her it done was, or it something? was a generic because if the thing about <clears throat> it is is that if you're i like wearing football jerseys but the problem with wearing a football jersey is essentially if you any fucking team you wear people are gonna be like oh you're a fan of so-and-so and you're yeah, like, like hey what do you think of this fucking dude and you're like huh uh, uh, football is fun for play <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, exactly. So you went with a generic. So I went with a generic. It just says, it literally, it's, it just says football. <laughs> it has like, it's like two like, numbers and it just <laughs> indicates football of some sort. <laughs> Team fair play for footballers. <laughs> I'm not dedicated to any particular team or organization, but I enjoy the idea of football. I support football in general. Yes. I'm not against football. That's what the shirt yes. seems to say. Was he uh scary? There's only one part where I totally lost my shit and everybody in the room 
that was on my crew at like that was the moment you were so where were you where'd you interview him in his in his ministry in the chapel yeah so that whole interview takes place in the chapel yeah so weird you, you've been in there you and like lower if you go online a lot of people seem to know the louis thoreau documentary yeah. online with the most hated family in america and he didn't even get the interview that Malcolm got. He wouldn't really talk to, wouldn't talk to Louis him. Thoreau. He gave him a few minutes where he dismissed him in person, but you I sat got an down. Hour and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, I mean, he was very generous at this time. And I mean, there's one point in the interview where he refers to me, uh, as brother Malcolm. Mm-hmm. And it basically sent a fucking shiver down my spine. What did he say? How'd that come uh, I was asking him about his family. Right. Um, and uh, essentially, he's in his history. He's got like two kids that have kind of gone off and off the reservation. Spe- yeah, and there's kind of speculation that one might the, be gay or whatever. Really? But I wasn't going there at all. But I kind of went. I was going in the direction of asking about his, his family, and he thought I was kind of going in for the kill. Right. And I wasn't. I was making kind of a, a general question, and he just kind of looked at me. He goes, "Well, you know, that's a little painful, there, brother Malcolm." And it was just kind of like you heard the like, howling wind. Basically, shit. he might as well just said, "Step the fuck off." Right. Like he definitely was like calling me brother Malcolm. Was just like, "Don't fuck." It wasn't like you are my brother. No, no, no. no. Yeah. There was nothing brotherly that he meant by what he it said. It was like though. calling you Mister Man. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, Mister Man. Hey, Mister Man. You're a dirty bird. You fucking <laughs> hobbled you. <laughs> He's like, I want you to write that book. You're like, what are you talking about? My fucking ankles. Oh, God. That is a long way of saying or going back to the original question. Yes, Phelps was definitely a jumping off point for me. When I saw that interview, I said, oh, that's terrifying. That to me is a horror movie. And I even said, first I said to you, make the whole documentary about that guy. And they were like, people have done that, man. It's not about this. I want to tell my story. Fuck this guy. He's just a little piece of the bigger story. I'm like, good point. I said, somebody's got to do a horror movie about that guy. And it was like Chasing Amy. Like Chasing Amy, I remember Scott was was uh, hanging out with Gwen Turner. And she was one of the uh, girls who uh, wrote – well, she was the girl who wrote Go Fish. Uh, she was going out with Rose Trochet, the director. That was a big movie at Sundance the year the Clerks broke. Black and white. It's the girl version of Clerks, but le- girl lesbian version. They sat around talking about eating pussy. Our boys sat around talking about eating pussy. They were in black and white. We were in black and white. We were the boy movie. They were the girl movie. So Scott had been hanging out with Gwen a lot. I'd see him as buddying up and whatnot. And he'd be like, where are you going? I'm going out with Gwen. I'm going to grab some lunch and hang out and blah, blah, blah. And she'd come down to Red Bank. Then they'd go hang out in his room and close the door. And I was always like, dude, you like this chick. And he did. He was kind of way into Gwen. He's like, I know, but it's just, I can't. It's ridiculous to fucking fall in love with her. Like, she's a lesbian, dude. She made go fish. Like, it's not, how am I supposed to? And I was like, I don't know. You should write something about this. And he was like, what do you mean? I was like, you got to write a movie about it, man, about a dude fall in love with a lesbian and shit. And he's like, yeah, maybe. And he wouldn't. He just, he, I couldn't wait. You know, I was just like, uh, you know what? I'm going to do it. And then I wrote Chasing Amy. And the jumping off point was Mosier's relationship with Gwen Turner. And as much as like a guy falls in love with somebody who can't possibly return his affection or interest, guy falls in love with a lesbian. That was it. Then once, you know, when I was writing it, people were like, oh, my God, this is like Mosier and Gwen. Then the moment they read it, they go, oh, this isn't Scott or Gwen at all. It's you and your fucking girlfriend or blah, blah, blah. And that's it was really more about me and Joey. But the jumping off point was Scott and Gwen. Same thing here. The jumping off point is definitely Phelps, definitely seeing Phelps in your documentary Um, and thinking, oh, my God, this guy's scary. Somebody should make a whole horror movie about this guy. 
after that, the similarities don't really exist. Like, that's why I've said, like, Maggie, come watch the movie. I'll hold the seat for you at Sundance. You can totally come sit and watch with me. Because they, there's the one kind of quasi Phelps moment at the front of the movie with a, you know, you see uh, people picketing at a funeral. Um, but that's it. After that, you know, there's very little resemblance to the Phelps clan and whatnot. That's why people are like, oh man, aren't you, what if they see it? They're going to be so mad. I'm like, I, I, you can't see this movie and go, I feel represented by these people. When you see it, you'll know what I mean. But, and even if you don't see it, I think you pretty much understand what I'm saying. It's just, no, but it would be like some family seeing Texas Chainsaw Massacre and being like, hey man, that's us. We're the Sawyers, man. But people think that it's like, uh, oh man, he's just going to give it to the fucking conservatives, man. And it's not like red state is literally what if, what the fuck in a horror movie could red refer to Malcolm? Blood. Ah, there you go. That's it. A lot of people, of course, want to overthink it and shit. This movie is not about conservatives. It's not about Republicans and it's not about Democrats. I mean, you can or the, liberals. You, you, it is. This movie's about if it, it's about anything. It, I know exactly what the movie's about. It is about America's dark fucking heart. I think that it's one of its closest cousins is Deliverance. Yeah, I think yeah. this movie has a total. I mean, it's totally a seven. It's got a seventies vibe to it. It's so fat. It's all those people who are kind of like harkening back for those seventies movies. Like this is it. Like this movie has a total Frankenheimer kind of like. You know, and it's totally got a deliverance vibe to it, I thought. Back when you wanted to make a horror film, I remember you were really fascinated with the movie Race with the Devil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I've said that for yeah, years. Yeah. I've always said, like, it's kind of like Race with the Devil. People are like, what's that? I'm like, it was an awesome movie about running from Satan. You've talked about that publicly before? The- yeah, very much so. I've, I've said, I've all, whenever somebody says, what's it like? I'm like, it's kind of like Race with the Devil or Rosemary's Baby. That's the tone I'm going for. And people are like, what? I remember when I first, that's when I first heard that, like knowing you, I'm like, really? And I was yeah. like, that'd be fucking interesting if you want to make that kind of movie. There are moments where we get the Rosemary's Baby tone right. And when I say Rosemary's Baby, I, uh, specifically for this movie, there, there's a moment in Rosemary's Baby at toward the end when she comes into the other apartment. Spoiler, spoilers. If you haven't seen it, see it's brilliant, brilliant horror film. Um, yeah, classic horror film, amazing. Holds up even today. Still hasn't been remade. Got to tell you something. So uh, uh, Rosemary winds up in the other apartment, you know, where Ruth Gordon and her husband uh, are, you know, a couple of Satanists. They got a bunch of old Satanists hanging around. And how normal and stark and average it is in that room during this horrific, like, there's a demon child in a bassinet that you never see. Her life is being threatened by a 65-year-old fucking woman. Knives are at play. Like, it's crimson. But there's such banality to the entire setting, the scene, the people, the faces. Nobody looks over the top evil or anything like that. That to me was always, that's what impacts about that sequence in that movie is, oh my God, like the face of evil isn't, you know, somebody with painted on eyebrows. It's not like Tim fucking Curry and legend, you know, where it's like, I am a part of you all. Like it's not over the top, blatant finger on the nose evil. Uh, really frightening kind of evil is when you're just like, this shouldn't be happening. Why is this happening? Why won't somebody do something? You know what I'm saying? And that's what I wanted to bring from Rosemary's baby to this and the race with the devil element was from the seventies. Like that to me was the finest example of the satanic exploitation movies, the movie devil cult movies, the devil worship movies. There were a slew of them at one point. 
Um, you know, it was all about cults and fucking Satan being called up and virgins being sacrificed and shit like that. And Race of the Devil was always the most well done, I thought. And the most, it, it scared me when I was a kid. And the ending is bleak and shit like that. Just when you think things are good. It has one of the original kind of like, just when the movie's over, second ending. Like, we did it before, you know, like the fucking, way before the the uh, fatal attractions of this world. Way before Friday the 13th when Jason comes out of the water. But the the genre always fascinated me, the devil worship genre, because it is. It's when you're raised Catholic, that's kind of thing is terrifying. They don't, at least in my church, they didn't feed us anti-Semitism. There was just the anti-Semitism in the Bible with like the Jews decided to hang Jesus on the cross and this and Pontius Pilate passed. But then the Jews, you know, they lean on Jews really heavy um, in the Bible. But generally speaking. The congregation wasn't like that. The priest was never like, you got to look out for these fucking Jews. But the priest would never fucking miss an opportunity to be like, these satanic cults will get you, will get your child. Like really fucking fear mongering. Yeah, because it was at that point where like, like there was a cemetery near us, the Greenlight Cemetery, where there was rumored to be cult activity. They found little altars, fucking killed animals, shit like that. And there was a lot of it. You go back and watch like video. You go to YouTube and do Satanism in the eighties. That's true. Satanism in the seventies, late seventies and, and early eighties. Man, it really became prominent. That's when like they started tying in with metal. But it, it, you know, you started hearing all these reports of like cults and them killing people and blah blah blah. And so it was always kind of out there. This fear of Satanism and this and satanic cults. And Red State just takes that and flips it. You know, it, it's it, it inverts the idea. Instead of a devil worship movie, it's a fucking angel worship movie. And instead of Satanists, you know, you're afraid of fundamentalists. Um, and it's not like an easy, let's take fucking shots at Christian people at all, by any stretch of the imagination. But again... I don't think anybody's ever going to – any hardcore Christian, even the hardest right-wing hardest core Christian is never going to fucking be offended by this movie because nobody's going to see themselves reflected in it. Well, the, the genius- and if they admit they see themselves reflected in it, then they need to be looked at closely as a person of interest. The next question that comes from uh, Your Melody One. Oh, yes. Your Melody, the number one. Um she wants to know. I imagine it's a she. Um, what's it your? Is. She's a Twitter feed, man. She's oh really? Like, oh yeah. She's coming to this podcast. get married. Doing marriage at Spodcastle. A couple butts. I've, you know she, her as yeah. well. Yeah, she's I sweet. Totally know. Oh, she's yeah. Incredible. We all need. We all need a your melody one in your life, man. She asks, um, best moment in post production so far. Thus far. Um, post-production was very accelerated. I was done with the movie kind of when we were done with the movie. So I guess that my favorite moment of post-production, hands down, would be we wrapped on a Wednesday. On Friday, we had a wrap party at my house, and I was able to show them the movie edited, completely cut from beginning to end with credit at the tail end. That, that's that, – that, I'd never heard of that being done before, and I'd been so ahead of the game while editing. I was cutting while I was – shooting and when i say i was cutting i mean i was cutting like some people have an editor and they're like yeah man i was cutting the movie they ain't cutting the movie they're sitting behind a motherfucker who does all the work and then they go do this uh do this do this i'm talking about i'm the editor that's where i take the most pride at this point in my career first stage of my career is all pride in writing writing first second stage of my career is all about editing um 
Like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trying to master that because I think the third stage of my career will be about directing, will be about becoming the complete filmmaker. I write it, I direct it, and when I edit it, I get to do another draft. So for me, I'm editing while we're shooting. And this time, since we didn't have a lot of cash and I knew we wouldn't have a lot of time on the back end, we try to save everywhere we could on this movie. So I was like, fuck it, man. Like I, all through cop out, I was cutting while I was shooting as well. I've been doing this ever since Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. But you know, I've honed it down to a fucking science now on clerks too is where I really started to hone it down to a science, a managing time, knowing how to do like, I need to do this much every night in order to kind of keep up with the movie so I can stay ahead of it. So I can always go back and be like, Hey, we need this shot that I'm missing over here before we wrap out of a particular location. So I always try to stay current. I'd stayed so current on this movie that halfway through, I was like, I was every day I was cutting exactly what came in and it was done. There was no bin sitting there waiting with stuff to be cut. So it was kind of like, I remember when Gretzky, you know, was uh, within the 50 and 50 goals and 50 games mark. Um, people start being like, is it possible? Is it possible? Could this be? And I had the same kind of feeling. Nobody else was saying it. it was me. You know, I try to live like Gretzky in my head and shit. So I'm sitting there going, is it possible? Could I, could, could I do? I'm within striking distance, man. Could I hit it? Could I hit like being, having the whole movie edited to the point of us watching the, the movie at the rap party, watching the entire flick and not an assembly. I'm talking about fine mm-hmm. cut. And then I was like, yeah, let's fucking do it. And I, I, so I started saying it out loud, you know, cause people are like, my God, you just keep, keep, we just shot this. And I said, I'm going for it. I think by the end of the movie, we're going to be able to watch the whole flick at the rap party. When it's not like the rap party was a week later, it was fucking two days, two later. days later. Like yeah. We wrapped like really fucking late at night mm-hmm. on a Wednesday, Thursday morning, Thursday morning. And by Friday night, and I, I honestly think that people just thought they were just going to see, I, I think that people were so completely baffled. Because it is a completely ludicrous, like even with even if you had had an editor on, right? Like w- when I did Taillights Fade, which like the only reason it's my only reference. When I did Taillights Fade, I didn't see the whole movie mm-hmm. until two weeks after we finished it. Like I didn't, I didn't as the director, and I saw an assembly that was like three hours long. Right. Like but that's the thing. Like I, I'm cutting. Here's why I think it. For me, I'm shooting, so I'm there for every moment. I'm my job is to sit there and watch every moment. And I'm what I'm doing is not directing anymore so much as waiting for moments like sitting there going because you work with cats who are so fucking good in the beginning. I used to have to direct, stick my hand up people's asses, make them say it like this and shit like that. You know, I'm, I'm number one. Maturity drop drops most of that. Number two, you're now working with a caliber of actors where they take your words off the page and they're like, uh, don't worry. They're like fucking, you know, John McClane, a live for your die hard trail. So they fade up on them like. I got it from here, you know, and they take it and fuck. I can't believe I had a good analogy. I brain fart, forgot for a second. <laughs> Happy analogy using that. Um, but they, they come and fucking like they're artists. They just drop lines like where you don't have to go between takes and be like, Oh, you're doing it wrong or that's not quite it. Let's do it like this. So suddenly you're left free to concentrate on other things. And what I concentrated on this time around was just watching the takes. I, I each take on this movie, I got to enjoy as almost like a film viewer more than a director. Um, so I would just sit there and kind of watch them and wait and catalog moments in my head. Like, wow, this whole take's amazing. This is a, uh, not that line. I'm looking for this line in the next take. Now I'm watching the rest of this. Keep going. Okay. This, oh shit. I need that moment. The rest of it's great. Okay. All that take is great. I just need these two beats. 
So then I would go and fucking, you know, the next take, ooh, boop, got that one beat. So I know that scene is now almost complete. I just need this one other one. Boom, saw the second one. I got it. I'm done. So I'm editing in my head, and it makes more sense for me then to hit the machine, hit the Avid as quickly as possible the next day, you know, of like this cut, this take, this take. It was on the second take when Michael said it this way. Uh, don't forget this line where we all said, holy shit, remember that? Or, oh, this particular intonation or something like that. So I hit the table. And I immediately go into like, I wasn't overshooting. Essentially, if I had it in one take, we'd move on on this movie again. We didn't have the money and shit. So it's not like I was hitting like a bin with all this footage, man. I was hitting a bin with footage, you know, a decent amount of footage, but all the choices already pre-made in my cut, in my head. All the cuts were already kind of pre-made. It's almost like the fight was won before you threw the single punch. You saw the ice, so to speak. It's, I know everyone hates so that analogy now, but yeah, I but, saw the ice when it came to the editing where I was just like, I just need to sit down. And now do what's already done in my head. And you get to really live within your creation. Like especially yes. in an art form that is usually so drawn out. It's yes. so hard to actually keep momentum mo- and feel, energy. To actually feel like a creator as a filmmaker is a very hard thing because first of all, of course there's so many people involved in helping you in the process. Right. The process. Um, but on top of it, it's just so fucking drawn out. But when you actually like, you really get to feel like you're creating. Here's the thing. I got spoiled working on the podcast on Smodcast where it was beautiful. Like we'd sit down, create a movie as we sat there and talked. And then afterwards I'd sit there and cut it. And then within fucking three days, sometimes one day it was up online being enjoyed by everybody or, you know, whoever I'm not saying everybody loved it, but whoever enjoyed it, it was there to be heard, uh, disliked or liked. And done and out of my life. And then I could do it again the next week. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't this long, drawn out. I mean, that's the thing. You write a script. Think about Red State. I wrote the script over three years ago. By the time we got to the fucking make it, it was almost three years after the time I wrote it. So I had to keep the energy and momentum up for that fucking long. Um, and then you go into production and it's in this case, it was 26 days or something like that. And then normally you'd have a whole editorial period afterwards and shit. And I'm more interested now having done the podcast and how quickly the turnaround is i'm like why are we fetishizing this fucking process that's the thing man you should hear the irresponsibility that goes into most post-production budgets i ain't talking about movies require a lot of special effects and shit like that um of course they need a lot of time because creating you know fucking uh, medusa that explodes into a bunch of bats or something that takes fucking time and artistry and shit like that but some motherfuckers just build in like two months for their fucking, I want two months for my director's cut. Like, why? They just like to be able to come in a few hours a day, look at it and go off, fuck off and do something else for the rest of the day. I, I'm like, I, based on the immediacy of the podcast, I'm like, let's get this done as quickly as fucking possible. And that's not to say poorly, because again, we have ace craftsmen. Uh, even if, even if you don't consider me an ace, ace craftsman, I'm surrounded by ace craftsmen. So quality is going to be assured. It's just not, let's just not fetishize it or f- fucking diva the process out and take much longer. Let's go another take. You know, Ben, Ben worked with a director once who was like, had him doing 80, 90 takes. And I was like, what the fuck were you doing wrong? He goes, I swear to you, it was the same, almost the same way every time we'd finish the take, but then the guy would just be like, all right, that's good. Let's go again. And just kept doing that. Never came in with a correction or a change. 
and he's going by take 60 you're just fucking lost you're like what are we doing like we're saying the same fucking things for three minutes that we've been saying for 80 takes prior to this and there are no corrections like what what are we doing and you find out the director just wants him to be tired He's like, I just, you know, I like him when to be tired. I like, you know, fucking wearing him down because then the delivery sounds better. And you just want to grab this dude and be like, dude, just trust. They'll act like that. If you tell them that's what you want, rather than make somebody go 90 fucking takes, they're just going to act tired. Like, who wants that? Who could fucking do that? Just feels ridiculous to spend way too much time on something that you can do economically in, in, in a third of the time. You know, if everybody just bears down a little bit more or if everybody just knows what they want. I went in knowing exactly what I wanted and I was working with fantastic performers who were given it. So I was just like, all right, man, let's wrap this up. Let's do this quick and ready to move on. And that's how you fucking get through. Like this was a complicated movie and we shot it in 26 days. The reason we were able to do that is because I knew what I wanted going in. I was able to be like, let's move on. We got it. Let's move on. Let's, we got it. Let's move on. Also, you're just, you don't even notice. Like you're cruising on the volition of the project at that point. Adrenaline's constantly flowing. You're seeing your dreams come true. Aside from like, you know, the having to answer a million questions and, and kind of keep everything up and make quick, fast, important decisions. When you remove all that, you are literally, and, and the, the little problems of like little petty problems that come up on any job and shit. Scrape it all away. You're literally watching your fucking dreams come true. You never get tired. You know what I'm saying? You're just constantly full of fucking energy because you know it only exists in this window. You only get that time of production to sit there and fucking, you know, be Mickey Mouse in the hat and fucking start directing the brooms and the water and shit. So you, you've got this little bit of, little bit of time. It's important to always like enjoy it and remember it and kind of savor it while it's going on. It was easy on this movie because I would sit there and watch performances just, Oh my God, this is a fun movie to watch let alone fucking make our next question is uh, from Matthew Perez Mora mm -hmm. uh, asking, can you talk about how the distribution deals go down for a film like this and what that entails? Um, I mean, I could, I, I can only speak to the only one I was present for. The only time I ever sold a movie was clerks. Um, Mall rats was made by a studio uh, chasing Amy was financed by, Miramax. So technically we were always working for them. Like we didn't, they gave us 250 grand to go off and shoot the movie. Um, that gave him the first look at it. If he liked it, he could keep it. If he didn't, we could go sell it. So, um, I, the only time I ever brought a movie, I mean, was clerks. The only time I ever sold a movie was in clerks. So this is only based on my experience with that. And also what I've heard about other deals in the years that followed. Um, in the case of Clerks, we went to Sundance with a movie that I spent $27,575 making, uh, a 16 millimeter print. So it was going to have to be blown up to play in legitimate movie theaters, you know, regular movie theaters and whatnot, 35 millimeter. So Miramax bought it. And this is before people start paying crazy prices for shit at Sundance. Miramax bought it for $227,000. A hundred of that, hundred grand of that was put aside to get it up to 35 millimeter specs. That included the blow up, a new blow up from 16 to 35, new sound mix and shit like that. Um, and then the rest was, you know, pay off the, the budget, the debt of the, you know, the budget debt slash debt of the movie and pay off people and blah, blah, blah and keep what was left. That was 1994. 
the very next year, shit went crazy in Sundance and people started paying millions of dollars for movies. I think the next year was Care of the Spitfire Grill. And uh, no, the next year was Brothers McMullen. The year after that was Care of the Spitfire Grill, I believe. And that was like sold for six million bucks and people's heads were blown back by that. And that was when the, everything started going crazy. People started spending, overpaying. Like Miramax bought Happy Texas for $10 million at Sundance. Like, you know, and there started being this Sundance fever craze where, you know, people would overpay up there and then, you know, come home with movies that didn't, earn out that way like happy texas caught they bought for 10 million i don't even know if it made a million um when they put it out there so there were times like uh, where when we went back with chasing amy we weren't selling the movie miramax already had had it so we couldn't be part of any bidding situation um it's different now going to sundance with red state this movie's ours to sell at this point so um it'll be I don't know it's going to be an education that's why I've said like hey man I'm going to pick my distributor in the room and you know maybe have auction type fun with it um so to speak so for me I I you know I I don't I can't speak to what it's going to be but I can project um and here's my projection uh we spent 4 million making that movie if that movie was the godfather 1 or 2 Maybe in this economy, maybe eight million bucks. And that's if somebody's drunk and crazy and writes a check for that. Probably the best case scenario you're looking at is our four million dollar flick. If we can sell it for six million bucks, that would be probably the best case scenario in this financial uh, climate. Now, you know, that's not the last money you see, or at least that's what they tell you. There could be back end if the movie turns out to be something, but the upfront money, which would be look six million on a four million dollar budget, it's great. You know what I'm saying? Like we make our four back, pay off our investors, got a little scratch left over, and then hopefully there's some fucking you know movie makes some loot and we get some back end there too. So that's to me that's the best case scenario six to eight. I think I don't think the market. I've looked at the market and I've. You know, it's a different world completely than back when they were buying Spitfire Grill for six or, you know, Happy Texas for 10. The business doesn't work like it did anymore. And indie film has kind of gone away almost completely, so much so that Disney sold off Miramax. It's now owned by, you know, a film colony group or something. I forget what they're called, but um, it's it's not owned by Disney anymore. You know, Paramount shut down uh, Paramount. Uh, vantage. Um, everybody's kind of dis- indie film doesn't exist in the traditional way that it, that it kind of did with, uh, with, you know, corporate ownership or studio ownership. When I'm in the room after the screening and we pick the distributor, like I'm going to want to hear, you know, what people have in mind, how to release the movie. I want to hear ideas. I don't want to just people pulling out a big fat checkbook. Like money is not as interesting to me as like, how do you see getting this movie out there into the world kind of thing? And after they see it immediately after that screening, that's why I'm like, I'm going to do this in the room because after you see that movie, you will, it'll crystallize for you. Either you're going to know exactly what you want to do or you're like, I can't be anywhere near this. So, um, that's why it's, it's going to be easy. I'm, it's not, I can literally be able to say like, how would you sell this movie and get a really honest answer? You know what I'm saying? Um, and particularly if they're, going to be other people in the room being asked the same question you know so i I don't know that'll be kind of interesting uh but i can't say what the distribution um 
uh, deals uh, going to be like this time around. I could only tell you what it was on Clerks, and that was like 17 fucking years ago. I mean, uh, uh, distribution might not go to the highest bidder. I mean, if I see somebody who's like, look, man, we don't have as much as X, Y, or Z guy, but we're fucking hungry and I'll do a kick-ass job for you. Then, you know, I'm, I'm going to consider that, you know, I'm, I'm, look, I'm a guy, I'm a fat guy who got married to a really, uh, thin, pretty woman. I understand lowering expectations. It worked out for my wife. So for me, it's like, I'm not like, I want gold standard, bitch. You got to be fucking like one of the big, the original six in order to catch my attention. Somebody comes in there with a fucking good plan, man. You know, I don't give a shit if they've released two movies, 10 movies, a hundred movies, you know, they're going to get my attention and they're going to get consideration, big time consideration. All right. Moving on. Mm -hmm. We have a question from that Ben G Mm -hmm. uh, asks, have you started thinking about a score or will it be a soundtrack? Um, it will be neither. I mean, there's a, there are two needle drop, uh, song cues in the movie. That is to say source cues, like, uh, one, something that plays on a car radio. And then, uh, there's a country song that plays on the radio on the sheriff's station. But other than that, there's no soundtrack. Um, and there's no score. This movie, it just felt like bullshit to put in a score for lack of a better description. It sounds a little artsy fartsy, but the movie plays so raw and real. If you're suddenly thrown in score, like telling people how to feel, like be scared now, something bad might happen soon. Or fucking, okay, it's safe, it's safe. It's been horrible, but now it's safe. You know, danger is not anywhere near. That just feels like, I don't know, like I'd, I'd, it works in many cases. It didn't work for me with this flick. I felt like the flick played, uh, the way that I wanted to play, which is it's unsettling. The whole movie's fucking unsettling. Plays a lot better unsettling if there's no bullshit score. If there's no like music cue prompting you, telling you, how to feel. And again, that's not me going, oh, fuck all score. For this movie, I just didn't, wasn't feeling it. So we were able to pull it off and, uh, there is no score, um, whatsoever. Sound design took over. Um, and, uh, it, basically there are moments in the movie where we use sound design kind of as score. Um, but it's not score. It's just kind of created with some sounds and now what's the difference between sound design and score? Well, sound design is basically like, um, you got traffic, you know, shot of traffic. Sound designer is in there with all different beeps and whistles and cars and horns blending it to create that scene as the, like the Pixar people from the ground up. That's all about sound design. They have to create that whole world from scratch. That's sound design score is somebody coming in there with music and creating something. Okay, man. Um, for our final question, I have uh, blue jeans, nine, seven, six. Blue Jean 976 uh-huh. uh, wants to know, Kevin? Yes. Malcolm is Red and Blue Jeans. Is Red State a game changer? Yeah, I think what well, you think game changer. I think that you could actually use your analogy where I think with this movie you really looked where the puck was going to go. I read the script a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I think I was fortunate enough to be one of the first people to write. Remember, you thing. were there while I was writing it. Essentially, I would uh like I finished Zack and Mary. And sent the script off to, uh, Seth to see, uh, wait for him to react to it, say whether he's into it, whether he's going to do it or whatnot. And he was off on a tour, European tour for, uh, Knocked Up or something like that. And, uh, but he was, a, he had a break coming up and he was going to Australia or New Zealand or something. He was going to be able to read it then. 
So uh, I, I knew I had like some time ahead of me and whatnot, and I was like getting antsy because I was like, you know, I wanted to get going, and it was all predicated on him being like, yeah, I'm into this, let's go. So I wanted to get going and as quickly as possible, and you know, the return call wouldn't happen, and I was just like, oh man, I got to keep busy, I got to do something. This is before weed. This is this is actually the last script I think I ever wrote before turning into a stoner. Because after Zach and Mary, I slowly became a stoner, and I don't think I wrote another script, did I? No. No. Hit somebody is the, is is, the Yeah, is the that post. came post. Yeah. So, yeah, so Red State is the last thing I wrote completely straight. But directed as a stoner. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's an interesting combination. Written by one Kevin Smith, directed by a different Kevin Smith. So I, I, I'm waiting for Seth to respond, and I was like, fuck it, man. I got to stay busy. I start writing Red State. And... I sent Malcolm, uh, you know, I saw him on iChat and I said, Hey man, can you want to read something? All right. And I sent you the first 15 pages and you wrote back, Hey, this is interesting. This is Red State. I said, Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to keep going. And Malcolm had, you know, the vested interest in as much as he knew that I was, you know, that Phelps was my leap off point for the character. So he was reading Red State literally. I wrote that movie in three days and you were reading it over the course of three days as it was, as I was writing, you know, I'd sit there and I think I was still smoker, cigarette smoker. Then I'd sit there and smoke and write and smoke and write and revise. And then I'd find you on iChat and send you a PDF and then you'd read it and fucking be like, I like this. This is cool. Blah, blah, blah. What's this mean? And then I would go write some more and whatnot. So Malcolm saw it as it was coming out like piece by piece and whatnot. Where did you, you were just kind of like, did they get away with this? It's like, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah very much so. Yeah, that. you were the perfect kind of point person, man, because you were just like, you should, I dare you, I dare you, do that. <laughs> go ahead, just do, do it, you know, like not the guy who's like, I don't know, man, don't play it safe, play it. You were not that guy. You're like, ah, fucking do it, show them all, yeah, say this and do that. It's just yeah, well, I would do it. Only a man with balls would do that. <laughs> So, Only a man with nothing to lose at the end. Yes, which you is were, what I am. Yeah, which is you throwing around the free advice. You were like a really strong base coach, man. You know, like in baseball, they use baseball terminology. You were waving me in and shit, like, come on, come on you can do this one. Come this one. Slide, slide, bitch, slide. Yes, yes, you're in. All right, plays. All right, stand up. Brush me off and shit like that. Pat me on the ass. I'm like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> that's not cool. I can't wait. Because the thing is, I can't fucking talk about it to anybody, and that's very frustrating. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, in the meantime, next week we'll be back in, in front of the uh, class and up at Smod Castle, um, and, uh, talking with, uh, some cast and showing some clips again. But, uh, rather than let a week go by with nothing, I felt like this was kind of good to put up. So thank you, uh, thank you everybody for the questions because it enabled us to fill what would have been a hole. Um, so. I like filling holes. I don't know, man. You had to take it dirty. Just the right. We almost got out clean. And you're like, by the way, anal, butt sex. <laughs> you know, putting dicks in places they shouldn't be, according to the religious people. But I'm not religious unless you are. It's the Church of Cock. I'm a member of that congregation. Jesus don't. Christ was a fucking sexy otter. Um, okay, but that's it for this week on Red State of the Union uh, Q&As. I'm Kevin Smith. I'm Malcolm Ingram. Sitting in for you, the audience, uh, Malcolm Ingram. Uh, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next week in class.